We've been studying the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, we've been doing more of a synopsis of the book. As we've been going through it, we've been taking three chapters at a time and um, just hitting the high points on, on those, but trying to find a good theme with each one of those. And tonight uh, will be no different. Our theme this evening, and um, theme, and not only theme, but also really the title to the message tonight is Prophet, Priest, and King. Prophet, priest, and king. And tonight we want to see that from the Old Testament scriptures that Christ is made evident and clear and plain from the scriptures. That even from our Old Testament scriptures, from, uh, from our book of Deuteronomy that we're studying, that we should be able to see Christ. Amen. And uh, we shall see him as prophet, we should see him as priest, and we should see him as king. And there is no other uh, person in the Old Testament or the New that has those three distinguished titles as prophet, priest, and king, except for one. And his name was Melchizedek. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But this section tonight deals with particular people and particular events that are happening within the Jewish nation. Uh, Last time we saw that God was concerned with the everyday things of life. I think that's important for us to grasp. That God is concerned about our everyday things. And he was concerned with what the Jewish nation ate. You remember that? And uh, we won't get into that again, but... Uh, Is God still concerned with what we eat? Oh, very much so. He says in the book of Colossians, it says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So we're to do everything, whether we're eating or drinking or whatever we're doing in life, we're to do it for the glory of the Lord. See, God has not changed uh, in that sense. God is still very much concerned for Uh, the people of God and how they conduct their lives and how they live out their lives. But he's also concerned about how they were governed. And uh, tonight we're looking at three particular offices that were in the uh, times of uh, the Jewish nation when they stood as a nation before the Babylonian captivity and all the rest of it. And obviously we're not speaking in the same sense as a Jewish nation like they are now since 1948. They're not practicing the same things that they did then. They're not practicing the law. They're not practicing uh, the sacrifices. They're not living those things out uh, currently. And um, I'm not hating on the Jews. I'm just telling the truth and just saying what they're not doing and what they are doing. So, um, But they're not following the law like God would want them to. And... Um, and the thing that we're seeing here, though, that God was telling them they were to be governed in three different ways. There were prophets, there were priests, and then there were kings that would eventually come on the scene. But overall, God had designed the nation of Israel to be what we might call a theocracy. 
a theocracy. What's theocracy? It's a big word, yeah. It just means that God is ruling, is what it means. God is ruling. He is the one that they would look to. He is the theocracy. And that was really the way that the children of Israel were governed for over 400 years. Uh, they were governed through a theocracy. There wasn't a king. There were judges that would be set up in the land uh, from time to time. Uh, but overall, the main person that was governing them was the Lord. Now, when, now that we're living in our society today, we live in a democratic, uh, pluralistic society that's governed by uh, different ways and in different fashions. It's easy to understand that uh, as you're reading Deuteronomy 16, 17, and 18, and perhaps other portions of it, that you might scratch your head a little bit and go, what's he mean here? What is this talking about? And what's going on here? Uh, why is this in the Bible? And how does this relate to me? Well, I may encourage you with this. Even whenever you get to maybe some chronology, all right? Everybody knows what chronology is, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and name after name after name, all right? Uh, listen, God's got a reason for that being there, all right? He's got a reason. Do I know the reason for every one of those? I don't, okay? I'm trying to figure that out, Amen. That's what we're doing all the time. We're trying to figure these things out. But God's got a reason. And we ought to take by faith 2 Timothy 3.16, right? That ought to be our main verse that we always come to the Scriptures with, believing in faith, by faith, that the Bible teaches us, that the Scriptures teach us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. It is the Lord's breath. It is the Lord's word. All, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is, and here's the key word that I want you to hear, and is profitable. Profitable. And then he tells us how. He says it's profitable uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So that's kind of the theme verse every time you come to the Bible. Just believing that what you're reading is profitable. Is profitable. You know, the first time I'll make it. I'll just just tell you that, like the first time I read the book of Job, no clue. I have no no idea what's what's happening there. Didn't know there was three friends. Didn't know there was Job. Didn't know there was another guy on the scene. I, I, I no doubt, no idea. I was saved. You know, first time I read my whole Bible through, I was saved. I didn't read. I didn't read much of my Bible before I got saved. But after I got saved, I read the whole thing. Got to Job, no clue what's going on, all right? I'm reading Job right now, and it's making sense to me, all right? Isn't that, that should be encouraging to you, right? That's almost been 20 years ago, so, all right? Uh, so, I, I'm starting to understand a little bit more what's happening in the book of Job, and uh, it all doesn't come in at one time, okay? All right? That would be like me saying, you know what, we're going to remodel your house and we're just going to come in while you're still living there and tear out every wall and every bathroom. How many of you would like that? <laughs> no, nobody likes that, all right? And God works on us little by little, bit by bit. And so hopefully some things tonight, I'm not expecting that everybody walks out of here knowing exactly what these three chapters are saying, 
But I am hoping and my prayer is that when we go through these synopsis that people will walk out of here and go, you know what, that makes a little bit more sense. That point right there really, under- I understand now why he's saying that and why that's, why that's there and why that's being brought out here in this particular passage. And, but most of all is that we can see and understand that these words are profitable. These words are good. These are not just Old Testament words that are relegated to the Jews and that we just kind of leave these off and that we don't just pretend like they're, they're not there. We shouldn't do that. There's great wisdom in these things that we're seeing here. Um, so I hope that it will be somewhat helpful to all of us as we go through these. It's been helpful to me, and I think it'll be helpful to us. Um, So as we dive into this tonight, we're going to see four different points. And that number one is that Jesus is our feast. Jesus is our, if you want to say it like this, our judge. Jesus is our king and priest. And Jesus is God's own prophet or our prophet too. Jesus is our feast. The Old Testament deals with several different laws, obviously. It deals with all kinds of things. But remember this, that when you're reading in the Old Testament law, in the Old Covenant, when you're reading in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, especially Exodus and, 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 and Deuteronomy, and you're reading about all of these things, realize that Jesus Christ is those things. Christ is the Passover lamb. All right? Christ is the Sabbath, all right? He is our Sabbath. Christ is the feast, all right? Plural. Christ is the unleavened bread. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the temple. Christ is the new Moses, all right? Okay? Moses was the mediator between God and man at that time. But there is a new Moses, a better Moses, one that's better than him, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about telling us that Christ is all of these things in the Old Testament fulfilled. Jesus said, I came not to destroy the Old Testament. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The word fulfilled in the Greek means to complete. I am the fulfillment is what he is saying. Because I am the word, he says. John tells us that he is. He says that Jesus Christ, he says, is the word. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. But in our text here tonight in Deuteronomy, he tells us here, of three different feasts. And we're not reading all of these here together, but the first feast that he mentions that's in the month of Abib, it is to keep the Passover under the Lord. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of, the, out of Egypt by night. And he tells them to keep this Passover. And with this Passover, there was also another feast that went with it, and that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So sometimes you'll read your New Testament, and you'll be like, well, I thought Jesus was crucified at Passover, but the Bible's telling me here that it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Listen, those two events are running concurrently right there. All right? So 
you, you understand a little bit about the feast. You can understand a little bit about the, 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 what's happening there and the time schedule of Jesus' death and, uh, and trial and all of those kinds of things. But the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread, Christ is our Passover. Uh, Galatians tells, uh, uh, the New Testament tells us that Christ represented both the Passover and he also represents the unleavened bread. What is leaven oftentimes related to? Anybody know? Sin, all right? So unleavened means it has no leaven in it. Christ is the unleavened bread. He has no sin, all right? They were to sweep their house clean, make sure there was no leaven in the house, all right? Because it is a picture of Christ. And Christ, at this Passover, was a time of remembrance. They thought back whenever they were Egypt in Egypt and God delivered them from them. You know, uh, we have a similar, uh, we don't call it a feast, we call it the Lord's Supper. I dare not say that the Lord's Supper is our Passover. That's not it at all. It's a terrible analogy, all right? Never say that or think that. But it is a Supper, it is a time of eating uh, that we are remembering. We're thinking back to whenever Christ died for us and delivered us. Uh, there are several feasts in the Jewish New Testament, in the Jewish uh, calendar um, and, and, and celebration. There is a feast that happens every week for them. It's called uh, Shabbat or Sabbath and uh, a weekly time of celebrating what God told them to do. There is also another feast called Purim, and that was invented during Esther's time. But the seven feasts that are given by God are the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's also the Feast of First Fruits, Harvest, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. All right? So those are the feasts. But in 16, he only deals with three. You say, why only three? Because God instructed that the, all the males would come to Jerusalem only three times a year. And these are the three feasts. The Passover of an unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks. Now, some of us know what the Feast of Weeks are, but you've never heard it called Feast of Weeks. What is it called? Pentecost. Anybody ever heard of Pentecost? That's whenever the church was initiated. That's when the church got her marching orders, if you will. That was seven weeks and a day. It says in verse number 9, after uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you should bring in uh, the... Um, this was also a time in which uh, was celebrating the fact that the harvest was going to begin. Wow, wasn't that a great picture? Pentecost, what happened there? 3,000 souls get saved. The harvest is starting to come in, all right? I mean, 3,000 people. You think, that's a lot of people. But how many people have been saved since the 3,000 people? Millions, right? Millions of people have been saved. I just saw the other day that there's upwards to 4 million Christians in Burma. I mean, just think about that. I mean, just uh, it's amazing to me to think how many believers there actually are out there. Some people question sometimes and they really, and I really don't, I really am beginning to wonder uh, about this question. They'll say, well, how can God send somebody to hell that's never heard about him? I'm beginning to believe that nobody has not heard about him. I'm beginning to believe there's more and more and more of the gospel out there. You read your church history. 
Did you realize that in the 3 and 400 AD that there were missionaries in India, China, Ireland, Britain, France, and the Oceania? 300. The gospel was getting spread around the world long before the invention of airplanes and gospel tracts and printing ministries, okay? And the internet. God's got a way to get the gospel out there, folks. Let's not doubt God. God loves the world. And if He loves the world, He'll show it to them. He brings in the Pentecost. And then he talks about the Feast of Booths in verse 13. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Some call it the Feast of Booths. Seven days after thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. This is another time and they were to come and meet together. This was also a remembrance feast. It was a feast that reminded them that God protected them and watched over them. And they dwelt 40 years in the wilderness in tents. All right? You know what this feast represents for us today? It reminds us that we all are living in earthly tabernacles. All right? And that one day is that God is going to redeem us out of these earthly bodies and place us in heavenly bodies. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So that we first understand that Jesus Christ is our feast. He is the one that we're going to for celebration. He's the one we're going to for remembrance. He's the one we're going to uh, for, uh, for comfort, for help, and for love, and for, you know, even for family sake. I mean, Christ is our feast. Now, Take your Bibles down to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse number 18. We're showing in this section tonight that Christ really is our life. He's everything. But we get into now some of of the governors that were there in the land. The first set of governors that he mentions are the judges. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout all thy tribes, and they shall judge thy people with just judgment. They shall not rest judgment. That means they shall not twist judgment, the idea of twisting it, of obscuring it. But thou shalt not respect persons, neither shalt thou take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, or pervert the words of the, of the righteous." That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, and that mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. He's actually going to deal with judges. Uh, we're going to deal with judges, maybe, uh, from here all the way to verse number 13. He actually includes the judges and the Levites together in verses uh, 8 through 13 a little bit later on. But Jesus is also not only our, he's not only our feast, but he's also our judge. Where will, where will all believers stand before one day? We'll all stand before, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, before the judgment seat of Christ. And Christ will judge us. Christ will be the one we'll stand before. We'll stand before Him. He is our judge. Do you believe that Christ ever obscures judgment, twists it, makes it into something that it's not? twists our words, puts words into our mouth? No, He never has done that. Has Christ ever respected any person over another person? 
Has he favored more people than he's other another people? No. Would Christ take a gift so he might pervert his wisdom? No. These are the qualifications for judges. And I would, I would protest, I would put out today that, that these qualifications probably still hold pretty good. Amen? I mean, if, we're going to, if we were to say, hey, let's elect a judge for our land, I would say these would be pretty good qualifications. In fact, when you think about it, some of these are still qualifications. <laughs> you know? If Judge Sylvia Holmes over here at Precinct 3, and I pray for her that she'll have good judgment. She's our, she's our judge for our precinct. If, if Miss Holmes decides uh, to take a, she decided to take a gift and let somebody off on a traffic violation, what would happen to her? And it found out. Nobody would like that, would they? If it was found out and proven and set up and somebody said, well, you know, she took a gift. And that happens sometimes. And judges get found out on that kind of stuff and everything. And uh, the, the, the point being is this, is that isn't it interesting to note that what the Word of God teaches is still being used by, if you will, almost by proxy in the land that we live in today. Where do we get these morals from? Is everything amoral? Is there is there a, uh, is is morality relative? What you think is what you know is best and everything? Huh. It's not when a judge takes a gift. You know? No, it's not. Morality is not relative. And it all morals come from the Word of God. The, not only do we see the qualifications for judges, but in verses 21 down to chapter 17, verse number 7, we find the caution for judges. He tells uh, the judges here, he says, Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees by the, uh, near the altar of the Lord, neither shalt thou set up an image which the Lord thy God hateth. He tells them no groves and no idols over here. Stay away from all of that. You say, that sounds kind of odd, putting a grove. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, you got to understand, it, it, it was the idea of, you know, if you put a grove up, that was a place of heathen and ungodly worship is what it was. All right? That'd be like somebody saying, I mean, I don't even know if this is a, a fair comparison. I'm probably not. But uh, can you imagine, uh, a, you know, a church saying, you know what? Uh, you know, we're just going to, I think we've got a little extra land right here beside of us here. And uh, we're just going to, we're just going to open up a, a, a bar and a little gambling place right here. You know what I mean? Bring in a little extra revenue for the church, you know, uh, and now we're running a little low here. You know, the Catholics do it. I mean, I mean, <laughs> they do. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, I, but bring in a little extra revenue. Okay. Would we, you know, who would second the motion? You know, okay, that's probably not a great illustration, not a perfect illustration, but it kind of gets our mind thinking, right? He's saying, don't do this, judges. Be careful with what you do. Be careful with how you do things. And we've got to be careful as, as, as Christians, just with our deportment, with our mannerisms, with, with, our, with our life, that we're not setting up ungodly things beside godly things and thinking, well, it's okay just as long as we're making a little bit of money at it and everything. Got to be careful with that. And everything. We've got to be real careful with that. Um, 
No evil sacrifices. He tells them, no evil sacrifices, no ungodly things. In verses number, uh, verses number one uh, down to verse number seven, he's telling them, hey, don't you dare offer a sheep or anything with a blemish. Why should they not offer something with a blemish? It's imperfect, all right? And what was Jesus Christ? Perfect, right? So if it had a blemish, then it would not be a representation of Jesus. So just realize that, understand that. Um, no idol worship, okay? So no evil sacrifices, no groves, no, no idol worship. I don't know that idol worship needs to be explained, but he tells them, don't be bringing idol worship into the camp. And then, not only a qualification and not only a caution, but also a question. The question for judges. And verse number 8 down to verse number 13, he says, Now if there's a matter that arises too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy, uh, what is blood and blood, stroke and stroke, what does all that mean? That means he said, she said, all right, argument. Well, he said this, and she said that, and, and no, he said that, and so he's saying, if there rise a matter that it's too hard for you to judge, all right, and you don't know what to do, okay, you will come before the priests and for the Levites, he says in verse number nine, and let them judge you, and then let them inquire uh, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment, and thou shalt do according to the sentence which they at that place was the Lord thy God shall choose to show thee, and that thou observes to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee. So what was the purpose? What's the point here? That number one, they, the key takeaway here is this, is that they listen to their authority. All right, the judges were placed under the authority of the priests and the Levites. And he says, listen to what they have to say. Okay, we don't know what to do in this situation. We'll take it to the priests and the Levites. The priests and the Levites, what were they to do? They were to take it to the Lord, inquire God about it. They were to take it, they were to take it, uh, and if you will, uh, they were to take it to the priests and Levites, and they were to take it to the Word. Take it to the Word. Find out what the Word says. What does God say about this? And then once they did that, once they found the answer, and once they uh, were taught it, then they were to submit with unquestionable obedience to what the matter was. And that's difficult. And now, there's, that's actually New Testament teaching too. If there's a matter too hard, if there's something difficult about a spiritual matter, uh, what, what does he say? He says, he says, don't, what does he say in Corinthians? He says, don't be taking your brother or sister to, 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 to lawsuit, right? Don't be doing that. This is paraphrase. He says, go find the most carnal, fleshly, ignorant Christian in your church and let them be your judge. <laughs> He'll be a better judge than some ungodly judge. So in matters of spirituality, in matters of the church, in matters of these things, I mean, Jesus told us too, right? That, that, that in, the two, in two or three witnesses, let everything be established, that we should, you know, if, if there's an issue, you bring it up before each other, and if you, after you do that, then you take it before two or three, and if it won't be resolved then, then you take it to the church, and you talk about these things, all right? 
And if you come to me and you've got a problem with, you know, you really got a problem with Alex, all right? I mean, you're just really upset, you know? I would, you know, he shouldn't have wore that African shirt this morning, you know what I mean? You know, I just don't let him like that African shirt, you know? Well, you know what the first thing I'm going to tell you to do? I'm going to say, have you talked to Alex about it? Well, I just, I don't know. But people, a lot of times, they don't want to deal with problems, do they? So, So deal with the issue first. Talk to that person, all right? All right? See, these things are, we, we, we sometimes, oh, that's the Old Testament. No, there's a lot of good stuff here. The third section deals with kings and priests of the land. Now, God knew, he tells them, verse number 14, that they would ask for a king one day. He says, there will come a day that you dwell in the land and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. So Christ is our king. He is our priest. Christ is our judge. Christ is our feast. All right? The kings, God knew that, he would, that they would one day uh, uh, be seduced and lust after to have a king over them. But God beat them to the punch. See, God knows everything, right? And he knew without a shadow of a doubt that they would ask for a king just like they did. But before they could ask for a king, he set some ground rules. All right. If you're taking notes, these are the ground rules for the king. There's four of them. Okay. All right. Um, Well, there's three. And um, but God, number one, God should choose the king. He tells them that in uh, verse number 15. um, He says, thou shalt in anyone set a king over thee whom the Lord thy God shall choose. So God chooses the king. He chose Saul, and he was uh, a no good king and ended up losing the kingdom. And then he chose David, and, uh, and after him he chose his seed. And then uh, Solomon messed things up, and so he chose Jeroboam to be the king over Israel, and he messed things up. And then he chose Jehu, and God was the one that was setting them up. God was to be it, all right? So God would choose king. Number two, and this is kind of a threefold thing, do not multiply. Anybody know? Wives. Three things. Horses. Gold. Yes, money. Gold. Yes, money. was a, And what did Solomon do? All three. He multiplied wives. He multiplied horses. He multiplied in Gold. He said that gold was so abundant in Jerusalem that silver was counted as nothing, is what it says. It says all his instruments and plates and bowls and cups and utensils were all gold. All of it. Silver was what you wiped your feet on when you walked in the door. It was so, so, so rich. But David, on the other hand, captures the Syrians and has a great army who has a great amount of horses and he kills all the horses and cuts up all the chariots except for a hundred of them. Why? David knew the promise of God, or the commands of God. 
Don't multiply in wives, don't multiply in horses, and don't multiply in women. And that's exactly what Solomon did. And as a result, his heart was turned away from God, and he ended up hurting all of the future generations that followed him. The third thing that a king was supposed to do is that he was supposed to write a copy of the law of God in order that he would not forget God's law. (laughs) Can you imagine? You You get coronated as king. It's like, all right, first thing, order of business. Here's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> you know, start writing. And, you know, it's, you know, writing, writing, right. But that's what, it was, that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to do that. And then the priest. And I'm blowing through this because I really want to get to this last section, this chapter number 18. But you have the kings and then you have the priests. The instructions to the priests, really, were not to the priests, uh, but verses 1 through 8 tell us this, that... The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levites shall have no part nor inheritance with the Israel and shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among the brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he hath said unto them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep, or uh, they shall give a priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maul, the first fruit of the corn. You getting the point? They were to take care of the Levites and the priests. Why? Because the Levites, who were also the priests, were not given land. So they were to take care of them. They were to provide for them. They were to give them corn. They were to give them oxen. They were to give them what they needed in order that they would minister unto the Lord their God. That was the point right there. They were to take care of the priests and the Levites. And then he tells them in verses 9 through 14, he tells them, don't don't take care of the sorcerers, the witches, and the wizards. All right? You say, wow, that sounds weird. Yeah, what he's saying is this. He's saying, the people that were before you in this land, they they offered unto the sorcerers, the witches, and the wizards. He said, that's not for you to do. You offer unto the priests and the Levites. You give them and you help them. All right? You go to some animistic cultures today and you'll find, uh, you'll find voodoo and you'll find um, head shrinkers. I'm thinking, trying to think of the word uh, about those. Witch doctors, yeah. And they offer to them food. They offer to them offerings. So... He says, don't do that. Don't do that. And then finally, the last section, verses 15 through 22 of chapter number 18, deals with that the prophet from God. Now, a Jew will only believe, a Jew today, will only believe the Old Testament. But an Orthodox Jew oftentimes will only really believe the first five books of the Bible. All right? Um, they won't, they won't, they don't take the rest of it. And verse number 15 is a verse. If you've got a Jewish friend, now they're not, might not listen to you. Okay. I'm not saying that they will. Okay. But this needs to be a verse that you put in the old memory bank right here where he says, the Lord, thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. Of thy brethren, like unto me. Like unto who? Who is me? Moses. 
He said, there's going to be a prophet that rises up like unto me. Now, there's not been another prophet like Moses. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, don't get ahead of me. There's never been another prophet like Moses that had direct relationship and correspondence with God. It says, he, it says that Moses spoke unto God as a man speaketh unto, uh, unto his friend. God spoke unto Moses as, as face to face. That's how he spoke to him. He, he just laid it out. He just said it. He heard it. He saw the back parts of God. All right? Moses, there was never another man like Moses. Never has there been. But he's saying, he's saying, there's going to be a prophet that rises up like unto me. All right? Who is that going to be? According to all that thou hast desired of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let, not, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord thy God, neither let me see this great fire anymore that I die not. I, I've always, this is kind of a side note right here, verse 17. I've always thought this was interesting what the Lord says right here in verse 17. And the Lord said unto me, they have spoken, they have well spoken that they which I have spoken. They said, we don't want to hear God anymore. It's too powerful. It's too much. And God goes, yeah, well, they're right. <laughs> you know, they, 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 I get it. You know, they feel like they're going to die and, and they're probably right. So I'll just talk to you, Moses. Okay. And I'll raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto them. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. I will, I will call him out on that, is basically what he's saying right there. In this last section, there's never been another man like this in the whole entire world except for Jesus. John 5.45, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For he had believed, for he had, had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Where did he write about him at? Right here in Deuteronomy. Remember, in our earlier lessons, this was very important. Moses only wrote one, if you will, he only wrote one book that was his. Genesis was hit was the Lord's in the beginning God. Exodus doesn't begin with Moses. It begins with somebody else. It begins with the lineage of, of, of Abraham. Uh, Leviticus says, it says this, uh, it talks about the first words are, are, uh, are from the Lord. Numbers, from the Lord. Deuteronomy, from Moses. This is the only book that Moses ascribes himself to, that he is writing it. Now, and we know he wrote the rest of them, but this is like his personal letter to the children of Israel. That God, this is his epistle, if you will, to the children of Israel. And in the Bible says, Jesus says, he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? And who quoted Moses? Who quoted Deuteronomy 18.15? A Jew, Peter. On, in Acts chapter number 3 and verses 22 and 23, who also quoted him? Another Jew. His name was Stephen. And in Acts chapter number 7 and verse number 37, 
So you see here in this passage that Christ is being revealed here to us, that He is the prophet, He is the way, He is the one that we must listen to. In fact, it might be noticed that God gives us a little formula here to obey. There is the king we first mentioned, there is the priest, and then finally there was the prophet. That was God's order. Prophets were before kings and priests. Abel was the what? First prophet. Abel was the first prophet. And then came what? The priest. And then came the king. That's how it works. We've got, a, we've, got it, we've got it backwards right here. We've got the king, we've got the priest, but now you've got the prophet who is obviously being set up greater than any of the rest of them because there's going to come one day, one that will have God's words literally in his mouth. And that is the word, Jesus Christ. God has even one eminent person who culminates all three of them together. Prophet, priest, and king. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is prophet. He prophesied. He is priest. He is the high priest. He is the one that has brought his own blood into the most holy of places and it has been accepted by God and it is for our atonement and our redemption. And he is the king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Everything in the Bible is centered on Christ. Even the obscure and unusual teaching that we get in Genesis about about Melchizedek being the king of Salem and prophesying and also being a priest at that time. And we hear another blip about him in Psalm 110. And then finally in Hebrews 5 and chapter number 5 and chapter number 7, Paul brings him up again and lets us know what that was all about. And what was it all about? It was so that we might focus our attention on Christ. And that's what all the Bible is about. And if you're not seeing Christ, then you're not seeing correctly. If a church just focuses on baptism, Sabbath worship, sacraments, if an assembly puts down the role of Christ and lifts up uh, and esteems the Holy Spirit as the prevailing word, and does not esteem Christ, if an assembly decides to put down Jesus that he's not really God, but he's just a man, then my friend, they've missed out on the purpose of the Scriptures. And that is to proclaim and lift up our Savior and Lord as our feast. He is our King. He is our prophet. And He is our priest. And may we look to Him and obey His Word. Father, we're thankful for the Word, and we pray that, Father, You please would help us to follow You in everything.